Jesus proceeds with the Sermon on the Mount, and I keep looking for a place where he can let me personally off the hook, and uh, it's not coming. It's not coming. We talked uh, some weeks ago about anger, and then we talked about lust, and then we talked about looking for better relationships than we have, and, and then we talked about hypocrisy. This week, we want to talk about our propensity to want to retaliate personally for how we've been hurt. When we talked about uh, this, it seemed uh, right to include as a part of the context uh, a Shakespearean soliloquy. Those of you who love Shakespeare know that there are uh, several themes, actually just a few themes, that are very repetitive in his, in his major works. And in most tragedies... Uh, one of those themes is um, the carnage of wrecked relationships and the futility of retaliation in those relationships. Hamlet, for example, uh, ends with uh, the character saying, uh, I am justly killed by my own treachery. And Othello, and Romeo and Juliet, and Macbeth, all are examples of anger and retaliation that really destroyed everyone concerned. If, though, there was one character that would be the personification of this kind of futility of revenge, it would be Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. Shylock, of course, is the Jewish uh, money changer. Uh, he's the one who loans money, and now he has a Christian who is in trouble who can't pay him back. And Shylock, as a Jew, has experienced many years of discrimination. And all of that has accumulated upon him. And you can hear in the following voice that frustration. And now that he has a Christian on the line, there's a chance to vent that. Even though uh, in the scene before, Portia has tried to dissuade him from such an action, saying there must be another way we can work this out. You don't have to exact your literal payment of a pound of flesh, but he will not be dissuaded. Listen. Why, this is the bond. And lawfully by this I may claim a pound of flesh to be by me cut away nearest his heart. Let him look to his bond. Why, I am sure... If he forfeit, I will take his flesh to bait fish withal. If it feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies. And what reason? I am a Jew? Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt by the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same summer and winter as is a Christian? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you 
wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in this. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge! If a Christian wrong a Jew, what shall be his sufferance by Christian example? Why revenge? The villainy you teach me I will execute, and it shall go hard. But I will better the instruction. For those of you who know that play, you know the terrible irony of its ending. You know that the judge admits that legally, he may exact a pound of flesh, but the contract itself does not include blood. And so the judge rules that he may have his pound of flesh only if he can cut it away without the spilling of blood. And if he cannot do that, then he loses everything. How spiritually, accurately symbolic that those of us who would only pay attention to the flesh and ignore the blood would lose everything. How accurate the judgment that as we respond to our fleshly inclination and do not see the need to pay attention to the blood, we are defeated. We'll come back to that later. But the other thing that we wanted you to hear, and we wanted you to hear it from a non-Christian source because it is a universal principle, is that the accumulation of hurt is exacted upon a particular person, with that particular person believing that it's him that is aimed at, when really it's not. When people hurt you, believe it or not, it has very little to do with you. It has everything to do with their background. It has everything to do with what they've accumulated, what they've experienced. And so therefore, personal retaliation will really not help. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and let Jesus continue with us with the Sermon on the Mount and we will see His words on personal retaliation. Starting with verse 38 in Matthew chapter 5, He continues His sermon. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, all of you have heard that phrase. It occurs several times in the Old Testament. One of those times, I want to turn back to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20, and just read it to you in its original context because it's very informative to hear how these words were originally meant. There was a sense of justice trying to be built in a community. 
And therefore it says, if a man injures his neighbor. Now I want you to see the third person language here. It doesn't say, if you get injured. It says, objectively speaking, if a man injure his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Now here's what I want you to see from this. This was to be a community judgment, never a personal judgment. The Bible never gives permission for us to retaliate personally to somebody. It never justifies that. It never justifies our getting even. How could it? Let me ask you, who is to judge what is even? If you hurt me, is my judgment of what gets even with you going to be your judgment? No. Is my judgment of what gets even with you going to be the community's judgment? No. There is no such thing as getting even. And that's why the retaliation was always put into the hands of the community and not given justification personally. Jesus said, you want to take personal action? Great. I'll teach you how. Read on with me. 39. But I say to you, you want personal action? Do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now stop right here. This does not mean that you cannot that you have to let somebody injure you physically in a fight. This is not about a fight. As a matter of fact, if you stop to analyze what this says, most people are right-handed. What would they have to do to slap someone facing them on the right cheek? They'd have to slap them with the back of their hand. Therefore, this is more about insult than it is about fighting. <clears throat> and so Jesus is saying, don't retaliate even if it's a personal insult. I'm sure he never thought of saying, if someone, who, if someone bites you on the right ear, turn to him the other also. That probably never occurred to him. <clears throat> but the principle here is that there is not just a responsive action, there is an initiative in your action. That love is the one that, that is proactive not just reactive. He goes on with that principle. If anyone wants to sue you, now he's not just facing you personally and physically, now he's facing you personally through the legal system. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. <laughs> I love this. This is outrageous. This is unreasonable. This is something only God would do. And if whoever, wants, whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, this is not a, a license to let somebody be lazy for the rest of their life. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, He who doesn't work isn't going to eat. Uh, Christianity doesn't endorse laziness. But this simply says when somebody is in need, you don't have a right uh, to, to excuse your actions. 
You need to give it to him. And you need to give him more than he asked for. Now, let's stop right here and just review this section and, and give us an overall perspective of what it means. I think it means at least a couple of things. First of all, it means, I don't want to burst your bubble here, the world is not a very nice place to live in. Jesus doesn't try to sugarcoat reality. He doesn't say, you know what, lots of nice people out there. Be surprised if anything bad happens. He never says that, does he? As a matter of fact, the Bible says, why are we surprised when fiery trials come upon us as if some strange thing were happening? No, that's the norm. That's the norm for life. You live, people are going to try to take advantage of you. That's the norm. And so he's saying, you've got to understand it's the nature of the world. This is not a personal deal here. We feel so hurt when somebody injures us personally. And our first thing is, I'm going to get them back personally. But as I just said, because Jesus puts it on a community level, because he has an understanding, this is much more than a personal hurt. People very seldom have you in mind when they hurt. When they hurt you. This is not, this is not about that. And so trying to get them back, because, because the hurt is not about you personally, personal retaliation won't fix it. The cause is much larger than that. The Bible says we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities. It's a much bigger problem than we think we are, much more pervasive than we think it is. I think it was George Buttrick who used to say, he's an old preacher, and he said, when the silent movies first came out, moving pictures, they, did, uh, they, 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 they took them to the uttermost parts of the United States, even at way out west, and sometimes they would show these things on walls of saloons. And the cowboys would hear that there were such a thing as, as, as silent uh, pictures, these moving pictures, and they'd come in to see uh, what that was all about. And, of course, you remember in those silent movies that the villain was really the villain. I mean, he wore black and he had a mutton and he... And he, and he Shot at people and he robbed, stole from the good people and he, and he take, took the maiden, you know, and manhandled her. And, and these cowboys would get so mad that they would literally take the guns out of their holsters and shoot this guy. You know, just start shooting. What they, what they didn't realize is that they were just destroying the furniture. They weren't adjusting the plot. Well, we've got to understand that when we try to get back at someone, we're not adjusting the plot. We're just destroying some setting here. We're destroying other things. And so it's not effective to, even if it were right, even if we were given permission, it wouldn't be effective to say, I'm going to cure my problem by hurting somebody like they've hurt me. The other thing he's saying is, that God must have a reason for leaving us in a world like this. I mean, let's agree we aren't in the garden anymore. Let's also agree we aren't in heaven yet. And therefore, we're going to live in some tough circumstances. Now, why in the world would God allow something to hurt me? I mean, that's a question most people have. Why in the world did that ever happen to me? Well, there must be an answer. And the general answer may not be one we like. You see, there are two things that can destroy a person. Pain 
and pleasure. There are also two things that can help a person succeed. Pain and pleasure. Now, let's just take the pain thing, because that's what we're talking about right now. What does God expect to happen that's good for us when we go through pain? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? Romans 8.28 God must have a purpose for our getting hurt. And that purpose would have to be that He doesn't just want us to keep even with the world. He doesn't just want us to be able to cope and wait until we get to heaven. There must actually be some good I read a good book this week, uh, Stephen Gully. He's a, he's a Quaker preacher in Indianapolis, and he wrote a book called uh, Tales from the Front Porch or something like that. It, it's about his childhood and the people he knew when he was growing up. And, and uh, <clears throat> there's this old doc, a town doctor. He grew up in a small town. And he said when this doc wasn't tending folks, he was planting trees. He loved to plant trees. Had a 10-acre lot and had a little house on this lot and... He said he really thinks this guy's goal was to plant his entire lot with trees, make a forest out of it. But he said he had a weird uh, approach to planting trees, this weird uh, uh, philosophy of uh, horticultural husbandry, as it were. He said he thinks he came from the no-pain-no-gain school of tree planting because he'd plant these things and he wouldn't water them. As a matter of fact, not only would he not water them, but after he planted a tree, he'd take a rolled up newspaper and go out in the morning and start beating the trunk of the tree. And one time Stephen went over and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm just getting this tree's attention right here. And, and Stephen looked at him and said, I, I've noticed you don't water your tree. Nope. Why not? Because it'll spoil them. What do you mean? And the doctor looked at him and he said, you know, when all the water is at the surface, the roots don't go deep. And if the roots don't go deep, you don't have a strong tree. Stephen said later on, he tried to plant some trees. He didn't believe in the old doc's philosophy. He watered them every day, pampered them. He said what he got were weenie trees. He said every time a storm came, those things looked like they were just going to tip over. But then he'd walk past the doc's property. And he saw these fine, tall trees because they had grown deep roots. And then he said, you know, I used to go in my little boy's room and pray that God would spare them from the hurt of the world. I don't pray that anymore. I just pray that they have deep roots. You know, God has a wonderful plan even in our pain. And that is that we get stronger. That is that we get better. What I love the phrase, that the, the saying says, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I believe that. I believe that. And I, and I love the fact that God has a purpose to this, but the purpose is not just to make us stronger, and it is certainly not just to protect us. And by the way, if you understand the biblical law of retribution, if you understand that there is reciprocity in Scripture for everything we do, 
If you understand Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, that says very seriously, whatever standards you have for other people, those are the standards that are going to be used on you. If you understand in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, where it says, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Let me ask you this question. Do you really believe that retaliating with hostility and intended hurt will bring back to you anything but the same just because you've done it thinking that you're serving justice? The answer to that is no. When Jesus forbids us retaliation, the very least that he is doing is saying, don't start a cycle you're going to be sorry for. Because if you're sowing hostility and aggression, no matter what reason you have, it will come back to you in forms you don't want. So there are at least two good reasons not to retaliate, not to believe that we can personally fix somebody by hurting somebody like we've been hurt. One is protection. The other is strength. But there is a third one. And this is the other half that is even more important. He tells us about it in the next section. He says, starting with verse 43, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> well, now, let me stop here and, and just say to you what you probably already know. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say hate your enemy. There is no commandment like that. What there is is a love your neighbor commandment but what people started doing was say, saying, okay, i got to define who my neighbor is. Who, who is it that, I, that I'm supposed to love? <clears throat> now, something happens when we begin to define who we're going to love. Because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And what happens over a period of years is that we say, uh, as the Jews did, okay, well, now who's my neighbor? Well, that would be, be another Jew. So that's who I'm supposed, to, I'm, I'm supposed to love other Jews. And then, well, what kind of Jew? Well, it'd be kind of like a Jew that, uh, kind of like I am, that is serious about being a Jew. I probably don't have to love the, the, the proselytes the same as I got to love real Jews. So, so, so this is, this is who I've got to love. Anytime you say, this is who I've got to love, there's also an unspoken, so this is who I don't have to love. And that's exactly what happened with the Jews. They built up these walls that defined their neighbors and gave them permission to hate those who weren't their neighbors. That's why when Jesus came, he had to redefine who the neighbor was through the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's why he said, who is your neighbor? And of course, the answer is, anybody who's in need is my neighbor. Jesus broke down the walls, but we have to watch the same thing. Whenever we focus on who we're going to love, We've got to watch that we're not giving ourselves permission to hate others. Jesus goes on from there, and he speaks it clearly. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be... Now, here it is. Here's the third reason. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. A, very, a, a better translation, a more theologically accurate translation of this, in order that you may show yourself to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You don't get to be a son 
by loving or doing good. You get to be a son by believing in Jesus Christ. And as soon as you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, you are a son or a daughter of God. But in Bible language, saying you're a son or a daughter of God says that you you, um, manifest the same characteristics as the parent. And so we love because that's God's characteristic. Show yourself to be like God. Love like God. He says that right now. He says, For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, God gives what people can't get on their own indiscriminately. He doesn't judge who deserves it and who doesn't. He gives it to everybody because He's so consistent. And therefore, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? He names the people who are known for extortion in the kingdom. These were people who exacted a set amount of tax. The government uh, 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 wanted just a certain tax. But it allowed these people to collect as much as they could. And so these are people who are extracting money by definition that they don't deserve. And Jesus said, you hate these people. And you can't love any better than they can love? That's what Shylock was saying. Man, I'm just doing what the Christians are doing. And Jesus is saying, there got to be something better than this. He's saying, and if you greet your brothers only, do you, do you do more than others? What are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, he says, he says, you are to be perfect. The Greek here is teleos. It means mature or complete. It means you have to love in a way no one else loves because God loves in a way no one else loves. You've got to go the other half, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let me give an example, just a more human example of what I'm talking about here because that's where it happens. It doesn't happen theoretically in a sermon. Happens where we live. Happens where other people live. I went to see my dad this week. I flew up. He's in a nursing home in Norwalk, Ohio. It's a small town. and I grew up in a small town not too far from there. He lives just a mile or so from my sister. She goes to see him every day. And I know there's just a little window of time when uh, where he's totally blind. He's He he can hardly hear anything. And, and he's all, he can't, he's, he can't do anything but lean over in a chair. Uh, so there's only going to be a little bit more time when I can really keep in contact with him no matter how long he lives. And I miss him when I don't get to see him very often. So I flew up uh, July 3rd and visited with him all day, and we had a, we had a pretty good visit. And then, and, and then I started back on July 4th. And I'd forgotten that it was uh, what happens in small towns on July 4th. There's a parade. I mean, I haven't seen a parade in 30 years. But I started driving over there, and I could not possibly get to the place. They had all the streets blocked off because the nursing home is on the main drag of where the parade goes. And so I parked the car a mile away and just started walking. It was so, it was so cool. I mean, I love small towns. It, you know, every little house was kind of like a you know, mowed lawns, and it was all cool, you know, and I'm going by and... And as I got on the street going down to the nursing home, um, 
it was, everybody was out. I mean, everybody. There were old people and young people and teenagers, and, 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 and a lot of the lawns had little tables set up in their lawn with refreshments for people that walked by. And they were all in a great mood. They could hear the parade off in the distance, and they were all, you know, kind of gearing up. I got to the nursing home. They had every one of the residents out in their wheelchairs, you know, looking for the, looking for the parade. Some of them had these goofy plastic you know, Uncle Sam hats on, and they, you know, and they, and they were all just kind of looking. And I spotted my dad out there. He slouched over in his chair. Of course, he can't see anything. And I went up behind him and said, "Oh, Dad, this is so great. We get to, we get to go through another parade together. I haven't been a, a, to a parade in 30 years. I'm going to describe this to you." And so I, I'm, I, my job was just to tell him everything that went by, and it was really, I loved it. First of all, the color guard went by. Well, my dad was a legionnaire. He used to march in a he used to do the parade thing. I said, oh, Dad, here comes the color guard. Remember when you used to march in the parade? He said, yeah, I bet I could still get in my uniform, too. I bet you could, too, Dad. And, uh, and so there, that goes. And then, of course, the police thing, and the lights going off, and, and the 4-H people and the Boy Scouts and the people, and kids on bikes with crepe papers and pets and, and everything. And uh, and uh, and then oh, this was so cute. They had a little majorette corps. Of course, you have the high school bands, but I didn't I didn't realize that there are still like little academies for majorettes. And it was so cute. They had the the uh, sequin thing going on, you know. Had these little cute, and they had all the way from uh, middle school girls down to like little four year olds. Had little batons like this. They're going on. It was. They put them under their arm, march along. It was so cute. And then the tractors, you know, and it's just a rural, rural setting. They had the tractors and the combines and the, and then one of my favorite parts of any parade is the local politicians. I, I love that. I, I really do. Cause in the first place, you know how high up a local politician is? Because if they, just, just by virtue, if they know somebody who has a convertible, then, then you got pretty good connections. So, so, of course, the mayor was in a convertible. and so. But then comes the rest of the Corps, who got elected to office, but they're kind of minor offices. But they're still very proud. I, I really think this is cool. They're very proud of, of being elected, and they're waving to their constituency. And some of the people in smaller towns, you, you never would guess that they held public office. And they probably could never hold public office anywhere but a small town. They're probably the only ones that ran for the thing. But, but I focused on this one, the one lady. It was so, so cute. This was a woman who would probably never achieve any greatness in her whole life. And, and it, I looked at her, she had this polyester pantsuit thing going on. And, you know, really giving her seams a run for the money, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <clears throat> Had had those uh, had those uh, uh, Velcro strap tennis shoes on, which is probably a pretty good idea for her. And and I was wondering, is this woman even going to make it the whole route here? Um, but it was so here she was waving to her constituency. It was so cool. Uh, um, uh, she was in her glory, and I just sat there thinking, God bless America. 
This is so good, where a woman like this can have an office. Now, I don't, she had a sign as to what her office was, and I can't, I can't remember exact. It was some, you know, the township assistant clerk in the area of, like, bovine activity or something. I, I, I'm not sure what it was. But, but I looked at her, and I thought, now, now this girl is deep country. I, I don't know if many of you who come from the state know what deep country is. Deep country is a, is a, is a kind of a part of our population that, uh, that have things in common. Like, like a lot of them have three first names. You know, like Billy Bob John. Or, or Mary Betty Francis, you know. But you can call me Sue. A lot of times if you go to a deep country wedding, uh, everybody's sitting on the same side of the sanctuary if you get my drift. <laughs> <laughs> Got that, you know, that cousin thing going on there. And I'm just thinking, this is just cooler than the other side of the pillow. You know, this is, this is so neat. This is, and here's this woman who's marching, you know, I mean, not marching, she's, she's kind of going and, and she's waving to her constituents and she's got one bag of candy. Because, you know, campaign funds come hard when you're from deep country. And so about every 20 feet, she takes out one piece of candy and throws it away. <laughs> well, by this time, I'm just having a ball. You know, this is so cool. But the, but the candy throwing thing kind of gets me where I want to go because, because what happened in front of the nursing home was that all of the staff were having a ball chasing after that candy. Now, I've got to tell you, these girls that work in this nursing home are my heroes. There's probably not a, a homecoming queen among them. They're the folks that get out of high school and in their 20s and 30s, and, and they just, they just, no, I, no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> See, I've started, I've gone too far down that road, haven't I? I knew it. I hate it when I go too far down a road. I mean, they're in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> and, they're, and they're working for minimum wage. And they're hugging more wrinkles and cleaning up dirtier messes than any of us would for four times that money. I mean, these are my heroes. They're my heroes because they take care of my dad. They love on him. They come and they hug him and they kiss him and they rub his head and they say, how's it going, Herbie? I love them. But you could tell this parade was the biggest thing that had hit the nursing home in a long time. And they'd been in that nursing home an awful long time because they were chasing the candy. Show me the candy. And they were, they were, they were out running in the streets when, when, when a, a, a fire truck would come by and somebody would throw candy. They were, I mean, out running two-year-olds. Two-year-olds are looking for the candy. There's nothing left. Cause the nursing home attendants got it all. But, but they take the candy back to the nursing home residence. 
And one of the residents that they gave the candy to was what I call the nursing home cusser. Now, in every nursing home, there's a cusser. These are people who are just mad and express themselves full-blown all the time. I had one of those in, in my first church. They had to put an old retired railroader into a nursing home. I mean, literally had to because their family couldn't, couldn't take care of him, and they felt bad about it. But he was so mad. And I'd walk into his room. His name was Stuart. I'd walk into his room, and he would start cussing. And he'd cuss me. And he'd cuss the church. And he'd cuss the doctors. And he'd cuss his family. And he'd cuss America. And he'd cuss everybody. I mean, he'd cuss and 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 cuss. Until he was totally exhausted. And at the end of all that cussing, I'd look at him and say, So, Stuart, you want me to pray for you today? And Stuart would look at me and say, Well, of course I do. I'm not an atheist. I'm just mad. <laughs> Well, this nursing home had a cusser. You could hear him all over the, all over. I mean, this guy had it down to an art form. You could hear these, all, every person that went into his room got cussed out. And usually the only people that would go in these rooms is the nursing attendants. And so every day, this guy would cuss them out. But yet, when it came time, they'd take, take that candy. Hand it to me. He took it to me like this. <laughs> but another one come up, give him some more. And I thought, what a great picture. What a great picture of who we are in Christ. I know a lot of those attendants are Christian. I know that a lot of them are doing it because of what Christ would do in that situation because of what Christ has done for them. We have been just as rebellious, just as blasphemous, just as ornery, just as repugnant as that cusser. But look what Jesus did for us. Therefore, when we do that for someone else, we're really showing that we're sons and daughters of the Father who loves way beyond reason. I tell you this tonight because I want you to know that those of you who are extending love where it hasn't been called for, where it hasn't been welcomed, even where it has been reciprocated with hurt, are not wasting your efforts. I know there are some of you in here who are loving even when it hurts. I know there are some of you who think, I don't have anything left. There's a giant need, and I know there's a giant need, but I haven't got anything. But there's something in me that wants to give anyhow. i tell you what it is. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just share. Sharing's a good thing. But sharing implies that we've got enough. We can give somebody else and still have something left. The world is so hard and so demanding. Sometimes we don't have anything left. And the world just calls for us to give.
Indeed, not just to give, but to even go into emotional debt. I know some of you are there right now. It's no accident that there's a rumor that Jesus not only died on the cross, but he had descended into hell for a while. There was an indebtedness to what he did. There was a, there's a, there was a, a going way beyond even what is even, even what is expected. And I want to tell you, when you do that, you're just showing God. And that's the best thing you can do. When you do that, you're glorifying Him. Beyond all worldly wisdom. And that's the best thing you can do. A few years ago, before the Berlin Wall was torn down, there was an incident at that wall that was initiated by the East Berliners. In that communist block, a group of people gathered all of the rank garbage they could on a truck. And in the night, they backed that truck up to the wall and they threw and dumped all of that rank garbage on the other side of the wall into a densely populated area of West Berlin. The West Berliners saw it and they cleaned it up and they planned their response. And three days later, at that site, on the east side of the wall, they deposited loaves of freshly baked bread and clean garments and utensils and other goods that are necessary for a wonderful daily life. They deposited that along with this note you can only give what you have. Let me tell you what you have. If you've got Jesus Christ living in your heart, you've got more than enough. You can last forever. Let me tell you what you have. You don't have just enough to cope. You have way more than that. And you've got something better to give than anybody else. Give it. Pray with me. God, thank You for dissuading us from retaliation. Thank You for the orders that we really can't do that. Not only because it would set into motion a reaping that we don't want, but also because it wouldn't fix anything and because it wouldn't show who you are. God, we want to show who you are. And I know that there are people in here tonight who have been so wounded. They'll, they wonder if they can ever love again. They wonder if they can ever give to someone. God, let them take that chance. Because Jesus did. And because Jesus is who is in their heart. We pray this in his name. Amen.